Jet Set Breakfast. Yes, 26 minutes after nine. I know, I have to lift up my hand. It's a disclaimer. This was not by design. I know. On Friday night, if you were listening to The Chills and we played Louis Armstrong, it was a, a song that was chosen. Maybe I need to be cognizant of the meaning of what is happening. And here we are, voila, we have Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world. Clearly, we need to take heed or notice something that we're not noticing. But anyway, coming back to the love of environment, and I've got my guests uh, Suzanne Vetter, Associate Professor, Department of Botany, uh, Rhodes University. Uh, Valerie Muller, also Professor of Sociology. And um, Michelle Cox, Associate Professor of Environmental Anthropology, joining me online. And they conducted a research and we get to find out what this research was all about. Good morning and a warm welcome to Jet Set Breakfast. Good morning and thanks for having us. And I suppose let me start with you, uh, Suzanne Vetter, because I know I've got the three of you all lined up. And uh, good morning to also to you, Valerie and Michelle. Good morning. It's a pleasure to so, be on your show. So there is a research that uh, the department uh, conducted. Tell me more about this uh, this research. What was it about? Um, thanks. Um, so this is part of a collaboration that Michelle and I've had for over 10 years, um, examining relationships between humans and nature that comes from our respective backgrounds before that. And Michelle has a program, a research program on biocultural diversity. And so there's been quite a lot of qualitative research that examined how people relate to nature, specifically around us here in the Eastern Cape, and specifically if it's closer speaking people. And that research showed over and over again that people, even when they had limited access, had quite a profound appreciation for nature and that being in nature, whether it's collecting wood or herding cattle or recreation, um, that people really felt it contributed to their well-being. So we then conducted, to try and see if this is a general thing, we conducted a survey of nearly 700 individuals ranging from towns like East London and Makanda to rural villages to explore um, the relationships between accessing nature, knowing nature, um, appreciating nature, um, and different aspects of well-being. We also were interested in the links between people's religious and cultural beliefs and practices and their access to nature because it turns out around here a lot of nature access also happens via rituals or um, plant use for traditional purposes. So, And one aspect of this research, and this is where the collaboration with Valerie comes into it, is she's a quality of life scholar and her interest is um, different facets or components of well-being. So um, she informed the sections of this questionnaire that dealt with um, quantifying or assessing well-being. And maybe um, Valerie can tell you more about that particular aspect, how we explored the role of nature um, in well-being during the worst and best periods of people's lives. Absolutely. Valerie? Yes. Good morning and um, a warm welcome to Jet Set Breakfast. I think that is directed to you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be on your show. And, um, well, the, I was asked this as 
Suzanne said, um, would I have any recommendations for a measure of quality of life, of, of well-being? Uh, so the most standard measure is simply how satisfied are you with life um, at the, the moment and um, all aspects of your life as a whole and also the different domains of life. And so at the beginning of the, this, it was wonderful to work with a survey that was so multidimensional. And I think it probably is the first that you have nature connected with, with that and all the aspects that Suzanne has just mentioned. And the other was the first was this looking into people's spirituality and their religious and cultural background, which in Western studies has not been incorporated. And for writing up the well-being, I had to look at what has been done in well-being and nature connectedness. And the earliest studies was in the 1930s, I think among students, um, psychology students, and they said, well, love of nature is related to happiness. And since then, not much has been done. More recently, um, people are looking at the mental health aspect, which of course has become very important during the COVID period. So these, these surveys, the multi-dimensional survey of nature connected started off with this general question, how satisfied are you with your life, religion, various aspects of life? And at the end, and this is what the conversation piece is presented is about was a, a measure, a new measure, and it was developed by a, psych, uh, a medical expert who was working for cancer patients, and he noticed that when he asked them, how do you feel now on treatment, and holistically, he didn't want to know just, you know, their pain, and they would do a life review, and they would talk about uh, their best time of life and the worst time of life and how they felt now. And this was the measure that Suzanne and Michelle used, but they were very imaginative. And they just asked the first part of the question and asked, you know, what was the best experience in your life, a long time, your worst experience in life. And then the people who, um, they, I was asked to, look at the domains that were the best and worst parts uh, times of your life, and then ask them, um, did you go into nature in those times? And then followed on to ask those who went into nature during their best time in life if that contributed to their experience of, of the best time, and in the case of the worst time of life, if it helped them to cope. And the results were very um very exciting because it covered so many aspects that Suzanne um, has already covered, which I think my colleagues would want to comment on. It was just, you know, the joy of being in nature in the best time, happiness, reflection, peace of mind, revitalization, <coughs> and just somebody said, well, it's just additional happiness. But it also touched on knowledge and being in nature and routine in daily life and recreation with family, friends, um, with community, and, and also they looked at traditional rituals, which were very important. And, and uh, for the worst time, um, most experience of worst times had to do with deaths in the family. And this brought peace and healing, and people could forget about their problems and uh, see a new perspective on life and mourn and grieve. 
And those who did not go into nature at the time said, you know, if we'd gone, possibly there would have been a quicker recovery or we might have had a temporary relief. It might have helped. And But some people mentioned that they didn't go into nature and were very interested in that. And I think I should pass on to maybe Susanna Michelle. The barriers that we found during the study, I think, are important for our, you know, work uh, for biodiversity. Mm. Uh, that's Valerie Muller, Professor of Sociology, Rhodes University, that's just been speaking there. And uh, opening up when I first had a conversation, I was just talking to Suzanne uh, Vetter, Associate Professor, Department of Botany, uh, Rhodes University. And Michelle, thank you for joining us. Michelle Cooks, Associate Professor of Environmental Anthropology at Rhodes University. Let's talk about the barriers, Michelle. Maybe if you could highlight a few. Um, yes, no, and thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, a, yeah, as Valerie has just shared, the study illuminated really, really interesting findings, and particularly from a, a global South perspective, which hadn't really been done before, and also from a rural on a rural urban continuum. Um, so, just to highlight some of the urban barriers. So what we found is, and obviously this is um, deeply influenced by our historical past, which includes, you know, both um, during apartheid and, and obviously within that context, um, township areas, not much space was allocated um, to places of, for nature or for um residents to interact with nature and this is obviously skewed meaning that people within um, more wealthier suburbs have have more access to nature than those um, living in poorer parts of our urban areas but the other important finding uh, is that also the way in which nature is conceptualized is also problematic and this also links again to our history because nature within urban areas is only planned or designed around nature being thought of as um, being accessible through uh, the creation of parks, botanical gardens, or conservation areas. And this means that it really is difficult for people who have other needs or association with nature struggle to engage in activities which then give them meaning um, or can, and or contribute to their sense of well-being. And because, for example, it becomes very difficult to um, connect to one's ancestors or carry out um, rituals or certain um, initiation practices within parks or or for that matter, botanical gardens. So even the way in which we think about nature within urban areas needs to be um, rethought. And this is a serious um, barrier in that it obviously has impact on people's sense of, of well-being. So that is also something that our study has illuminated. Um, I'll hand over to Susie. She can also speak a bit about the rural areas also because they are also impact there. Yes, um, Suzanne Fenter? Yes. 
Suzanne Vetter, and I don't know why I'm calling you Vetter. <laughs> Suzanne Vetter's <laughs> Associate Professor, Department of Botany at Rose University. You know, in this, what what I what I picked up, what I love the most about nature, and considering that you know we're going through a phase which I don't understand, and we are very stressed, and um, people are committing suicide because of depression, and you're in in your findings, Valerie, you did mention that nature is feelings. And also, you know, it eased stress and um, loneliness. And if nature is that good, my question then becomes, why is it we are urbanizing everything and erect, erect, you know, erecting all these buildings that actually affect something that is very good for our well-being? Yeah, that's a terrible paradox. Um um, and, you know, people do flock to cities. Um, Michelle had a master's student, Avella Ndrambe, who did a really amazing study on migrant workers who left their rural homes in Quintana to work in Cape Town, where they would end up in these really awful, informal, dense settlements. And, um, and, and it just highlighted that tension, that the city is the place where the economic opportunities are, and people will live leave behind a life that, from a quality life point of view, they far prefer, but they need to earn money. They need to have money to you know, fulfill their ambitions, whether it's in the city or in the rural areas. And, and there were some really um, profound descriptions of just how um, the sense of longing for the rural home, which is you know, beautiful, familiar, meaningful, and actually the misery of living in that urban environment. Um, but unfortunately, urban planning, I think in a lot of places, but especially in South Africa, is such that you know, our rural areas offer so few opportunities for a viable you know, lifestyle and so on. And so it turns out a lot of people invest in their rural homes back home where the quality of life is a lot more what people like, although even so, you know, there's a lack of basic services and so on. And the cities are buckling under the influx of so many people who need to go there to make a living. And it isn't well planned. And I mean, that's the situation here in the Eastern Cape. Obviously, when you go to metros like Johannesburg, it's even more complicated. And um, yeah, in an article I read about, you know, the sort of remnants of green apartheid, I saw some reader comments being quite negative saying, well, you know, you have a bit of green space and people just fill it with shacks. But unfortunately, those are also some of the economic realities and hardships that we have here in South Africa. Mm, that is so true. And I, I just want to to find out from, from whoever can answer this particular uh, thought. It's like in urban areas, we do, we do have like green belts. And now, like, you know, um, urban construction, you find people are building either within the riverbanks or they are building in the green belts. And the green belts are meant to be for nature. Um, have you done any extensive studies in that regard? And um, if, if at all, you have any findings? Um, no, um, I, none of us have looked at that. I know people, like, for example, in environmental science at our university are much more... Um, interested in the sort of urban planning, urban greening issues. I mean, our research focuses a lot more on the sort of intangible relationship and on these relationships between well-being and culture slash spirituality and nature, but we don't actually ourselves really focus on these urban 
sort of the physical urban planning aspects. But of course, they are very important. Mm. What can we do to fix this this problem? Where we are all just clustering in the urban areas, but also we are not really thinking very, very carefully about the environment. Are there any solutions from your research or your findings where you've come up with, uh, you know, uh, solutions to say this this is what we could do to make sure that nurture, uh, nature is preserved? Um, no, uh, first of all, I think there is also um, a real need for everyone. Basically, the idea that to satisfy um, humans, too much emphasis is currently being placed on economic needs of, of our communities, societies. And I mean, this is very much made also more intense under the current conditions that we're living in. But I mean, there is so much more to being human. and But so much attention is given towards improving economic spheres. And within that, these more invisible or invisible and um, intangible aspects of, of being human are then forgotten. And we need to bring that more back into our discourse or public awareness of how, you know, how important well-being is. Because if communities sense or individuals living in communities sense of well-being is not adequately addressed, you have issues of um, social unrest or, or and not cohesion. So there really is a need for us to also speak at that level or look at that level, but in terms of um, what can be done practically, it really is about um, engaging at a very local level of what communities needs are from nature because as I highlighted earlier us thinking that providing more parks or more you know is the solution yes they provide an important recreational need but they will not address the more spiritual needs that people often have from nature so there is also a need to really um engage at a local level to find out the ways in which people want to be in nature and then find ways of um, creating those spaces which then also become places for people for, to interact with nature. And often it can even be um, providing access you know, to land where people can also then grow um, resources or vegetables or plants which they then find meaningful in their lives. It doesn't have to be these massive scale out role because often it's the more intimate relationship with nature that also then contributes to people's well-being. So those are the kinds of ways we are advocating of how um, we need to rethink how nature becomes situated within our urban areas. Mm. I mean, what would be the ideal in terms of, I know that we've spoken about parks 
you know, and, and hmm. to, to just to create parks so that we do have access to nature or, you know, to some sort. What would be ideal? I'm not so sure who can answer me. It could be Suzanne, it could be Valerie or Michelle. <clears throat> well, I'd like, I'd like to, to also mention to... the Sorry. importance of, of uh, children having um, contact with nature and being in nature. And this came out in our study because many of the best times were uh, things, the first experience of being in nature, doing the first thing. And um, we found, for instance, one of our studies that people who'd grown up in rural areas, when they came to town, they felt they, in their childhood they'd done the things that Suzanne mentioned, you know, looked after animals that were involved in growing food. And they felt they were still custodians of nature in town. And they had probably, as Michelle has mentioned, the spiritual connection that had grown while they were growing up. And um, last week on your program, you invited a person who talked about the importance of children being able to play in safe spaces in, in the urban green space. Yes. And that would be very important and how groups like Michelle was saying would come together to say what green spaces do we need for our children for the next generation who are going to safeguard um, the biodiversity for the future of humanity. So that was just a point I thought I'd like to throw in, but I'll hand over to my colleagues who are experts in that field. Um, that's quite that's quite insightful, uh, Valerie. I think it was. It, is it Suzanne? Yeah. So Valerie said exactly what I was butting in to say, which is um, the really important role of children and young people having access to nature and and having the safety to do so. Um, it's really you know access to nature can't be seen in isolation from issues that's prevented, and some of it is physical urban sprawl and lack of there being such spaces. But as Michelle has pointed out, these spaces don't have to be large, pristine swathes of nature. And in most of our cities, even our big cities, there are natural areas. There are beaches, there are mountains, there are um, empty pieces of land. But one of the really big issues is safety and, and, and just other sort of things that compete for young people's time. Um, and economic distress that gives you less leisure time. But yeah, the safety aspect was really identified strongly in a whole lot of aspects of our research, especially for women and children. Mm. Let's just take a small break. My guest, I'm speaking to Suzanne Vetter, Associate Pro uh, Professor, Department of Botany, Rhodes University, as well as Valerie Muller, Professor of Sociology, Rhodes University, and Michelle Cox, Associate Professor of Environmental Anthropology at Rhodes University. And we are just uh, trying to figure out and, you know, having a conversation, a dialogue around the environment. And they did an, an extensive research to try and figure out, you know, what could be done, number one, and also just highlighting the fact that the environment is absolutely excellent for our well-being and we ought to preserve let's take a small break we'll be back the jet set breakfast music culture lively and critical discussions on safm and i'm speaking to my three guests uh suzanne vetter associate professor department of botany rhodes university valerie moller Professor of Sociology, Rhodes University, as well as Michelle Cox, Associate Professor of Environmental Anthropology at Rhodes University. Um, I've got a, a, a 
it's a it's I think it's a statement rather from uh, Benjamin Jack Magongo, uh, an environmentalist. So he says, "Morning, SAFM. Please ask your guest if they have branches." office at Mpumalanga province jurisdiction of uh, Enhlanzeni district municipality i have noticed that rural communities don't have initiative towards rural river stream rehabilitation wetlands um thank you there that's from benjamin i'm not so sure who can answer me ladies my professor ladies okay. <laughs> um, unfortunately we don't i'm at the moment most of this research has been um, carried out in the Eastern Cape. Um, yeah, so we haven't extended beyond those borders yet. But, you know, uh, despite the in-depth focus in the Eastern Cape, we do feel that many of these same sentiments, you know, would apply across the country or even across Southern Africa. Um, you know, yeah, uh, but to go back to your question of what can be done, I just also wanted to to highlight how current legislation is also not giving enough focus or attention to issues of of well-being and people's or particularly urban people's needs of nature. And this is also reflected in the legislation that exists around common edge areas. So within many of our small to medium towns, um, the suppliers um, in the Eastern Cape, but also in other parts of, of South Africa, is the legislation allows only or only gives recognition to subsistence needs of, of common edge areas, meaning that you can have livestock and you can also use these areas um, you know, to grow and collect natural resources. But currently, um, you know, the ability to carry out um, rituals or even um, initiation, which is, you know, which the majority of um, men have to undergo is a period of seclusion um, when they are being initiated. But the current legislation does not... or engage sufficiently with the needs of these spaces for such practices. And in addition, many of these areas um, have also become unsafe, particularly for women to to be in. So there is, even where there is nature, there is actually not not enough is being done in terms of giving the recognition that is needed um, for communities to engage in the kinds of activities that they wish to or need to be doing in such place in such spaces and safety particularly amongst our urban respondents was a huge huge problem and this again then speaks to the difficulties you know of children then having um places to play in mm. and um just lastly to wrap up are there countries that lead by example in balancing, you know, nature and urban life? Yes, they are. Um, And ironically, this is being very well uh, achieved um, in some very developed countries, but where um, 
indigenous communities have gotten far more recognition. So, for example, in Canada, you will see um, now parks within such cities like Vancouver. There are um, tree species that are being brought into these parks that indigenous people have stronger affiliation with. And you will also see there is now increasingly legislated for that you can now harvest and gather within these parks. So it's not just about recreational needs that are being catered for. So um, there are definitely movements towards seeing that nature, you know, looking at these more intimate types of relationship with nature and there is a movement towards um, parks attempting to to facilitate that. Great stuff. Um, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. Suzanne Vetter, Associate Professor, Department of Botany, Rhodes University. Uh, Valerie Moller, Professor of Sociology, Rhodes University, as well as Michelle Cox, Associate Professor of Environmental Anthropology, Rhodes University. Thank you so much for sharing some insight. Let's hope we all, you know, start changing our narrative and start doing the right thing because, you know, we undermine the importance of looking after an environment. And we now don't understand why we have all these kind of ailments. And it could be, you know, just lack of having fresh air could be a contributing factor. And for you to get fresh air, the environment must be clean and it must just do what it needs to do with all its natural resources. Thank you so much for joining us on SAFM. Thank you, Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you. Th thank you. Have a great Sunday ahead. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So for the Bye. love of the environment, well, we have been speaking to our guests and I like the way they defined nature. So the definition of nature uh, includes anything from dense natural forest in rural areas to patches of bush and communal grazing, grazing land around towns and villages. And I'm not so sure how we've come to where we are, but for some bizarre reason, urbanization seems to have taken over but hey yeah we just need to change our mindset it is two minutes just before 10 and kg will be taking over and of course giving you the best music that you can ever experience on seasons that's from 10 right up until one and uh, we will be back again next week at the same time jet set breakfast making sure we engage and we have uh, interesting conversations and of course we all partake and always make note that our communication whatsapp line is 0614104107 it's been a pleasure phineas my technical producer, Tosh, content producer and Ntabiseng content producer, making sure everything is glued together and uh, it's all fantastic. It's been great. Have a great Sunday. Cheerio.